Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Dress Fancy, the weekly podcast that celebrates fancy dress in all its bonkers, highly flammable glory. I'm Lucy Clayton and I'm here with cultural historian Dr Benjamin Wilde to discuss a subject we're obsessively fond of. As always, you can view the images that accompany this conversation on our Instagram, at Dress Fancy Podcast. Now, previous episodes have explored how fancy dress costume throughout history reflects the zeitgeist. In the modern period and today, I think this is most readily demonstrated by thinking about the connection between dressing up and the silver screen. And there's a quotation from an American newspaper that I think encapsulates this interesting connection and this wide sweep if we look back through history of the connection between fancy dress and costume. And it is as follows from the Milwaukee Journal of April 1933. Princes and cavaliers will find themselves out of jobs. Their places will be taken by Mussolinis and Hitlers and girls dressed as West Point cadets or nifty bellhops. The movies are going to have a marked influence The average youth who will take part in the frolics would rather impersonate a Valentino as a sheikh than Napoleon as a fighter. Mussolini, dictator of today, than Caesar, the emperor of the dim past. But the girls are out for bolder adventures. Costumers say they can hardly supply the demand of women for masculine attire, and they blame Miss Dietrich for the craze among women to put on trousers. <laughs> I mean, I love that it's they blame Miss Dietrich. You, you'd think they'd be a little bit more encouraging, a little bit more sort of positive about that. It's sort of kinder, that, isn't it, to say, inspired by. Yeah, exactly but so. Yeah. But no, what an awful thing to want to put on trousers. But I think at the same time, <laughs> what's quite interesting is how this does reflect that sort of transition in the 1930s. You've obviously got those, in a sense, gendered stereotypes and roles as we've seen before, I think when we were looking at the Devonshire Ball, those right. descriptions is very much acknowledging that people in fancy dress can move out of their prescribed social mm-hmm. roles, as it were, but at the same time, not quite liking that and, and shoving them very firmly back in the box. In and their I think place that's, as well. Yeah, you know, and, and not I think a movie star. You're exactly. Put your skirt back um, on. <laughs> and I think that's what comes through a little bit here. But I think what we also can understand through this extract is this idea that movies are a means by which in the 1930s were, if we think about um, statistics from America, possibly about 80 million people a week Mm -hmm. flocking to the um, silver screen. There is a growing sense encapsulated in this extract of movies being transformational. And I think what can explain this is the fact that movies can tap into the zeitgeist. They're a way of enabling people to perhaps escape some of the troubling realities in the 1930s with the Great Depression. Of course. And we see this, I think, if we jump chronologically, but the same idea into the 1980s. So 1970s, 1980s, the economy globally begins to tank. And a lot of fancy dress suppliers in, in similar news stories say that fancy dress has a wide appeal for people because they can don amazing costumes inspired chiefly by the movies and become these wonderful escapist sort of characters, which is so different to the troubling realities of their life. If they're thinking about losing their job, if they're thinking about, you know, life savings sort of evaporating Mm -hmm. because the stock market is tanking. So the idea then that, you know, as I said, throughout history, there is this 
quite interesting connection of the popularity with movies and peaks and troughs in how people regard their self-confidence and how on the back of that you've almost got sort of fancy dress costume, I think, as well. And much more recently, I was talking with the marketing director of a, a fancy dress supplier here in London, and he was saying that they'd noticed a marked increase in film characters from the 1980s, so your He-Man and your or your She-Ra, which I'm sure we can all remember watching, even if we don't admit to it. Um, although, actually, I, I'm quite proud to say I, I watched He-Man. I'm not ashamed <laughs> of that at it. all. Yeah, You're I am. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, sorry, the serious point here is that he was saying that after the economy began to tank in 2008, 2009, people are hiring almost sort of costume designs from their childhood, this idea right. of escapism but linked very much to the movies. So that's a kind of doubly regressive act, isn't it? Because obviously fancy dress is inherently a childish mm. activity to yep. sort of, you know, take off your real grown-up clothes and dress up as something else. That's a very kind of, it's, it's playing, isn't mm. it, in a way that actually as a grown-up, you don't often get to explore that. Yeah. So, so that's on the one hand, that's sort of a given. And then by then dressing up in something that is nostalgic to your own mm. personal childhood, a character that you remember from film and TV of yore, it's almost doubly comforting, isn't it? As a I think so, because I think it reminds me, in a sense, of a theme that we looked at in our last episode with warfare, that during periods of military conflict, as you said then, there's a sense of gender roles or just fluidity in mm, your roles. Mm. I think you almost get that when there's an economic downturn as well, because you're maybe, you know, if you're being laid off, if you're thinking about your future in a particular company or institution, you've got that sort of fluidity of self. Mm, that's true, yes. And it's that might lend itself. anyway. Yeah, yeah, so it lends itself possibly Good to them bad, thinking, yeah, more freely in, in costume, perhaps. Right, okay. I mean, why do we think that movie costumes should be such a big part of fancy dress or a big influence on the fancy dress industry. What is it about the cinema that's so compelling that we are drawn to kind of mm. recreate it through fancy dress? Well, I think one of the things which I think the 1933 account that we started with picks up quite beautifully is this idea that movies encapsulate the zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. There's a sense that movies are a big part of people's lives. And I think we can see that almost when you have movies or characters within them that at a particular moment in our lives we can really relate to. And obviously that's sort of the, the subtlety of the marketing and the or manipulation sure. yeah. or whatever. But I think there is this sense that movies convey something more broadly that we all feel mm -hmm. and we can sort of channel it through what we see on the silver screen and almost, I suppose, partake of something that is larger than ourselves. Yeah. We can sort of connect with a, a wider sort of social consciousness. I suppose in another way, though, it's also prosaic. When we're donning our costumes, we've probably all experienced the big fail where we've dressed as something <laughs> no, that we think is I amazing. Have not, okay, of this course. is this is just a personal kind of <laughs> as the um, self self appointed queen of fancy dress. That's never happened to me. Just okay, like to make that okay. Well, it, it clear. might do. It might. It, do. I, I still I, might I, do. It's um, true. Anyway, with, with me, it has. Um, so <laughs> this is almost quite cathartic talking about it. Anyway, um, but I think it, you don't want that costume fail. Um, and so if you dress as something from a, a character or a theme, I guess, from a movie, which a lot of people have perhaps seen, it's it's recognisable. Yes, it's, it's a sort of universal shared reference, I think so. isn't it? So you can walk into the room with confidence mm. knowing that you're not going to meet a sort of tumbleweed 
scene of <laughs> blank faces. Yeah, absolutely. Which isn't the way to enter a party. It really is not, no. <laughs> but I, I suppose also it's as much that you don't want that costume fair. It might also, frankly, just be laziness. Right, Let, let's course. be honest. Yeah, it, you yeah. know, you don't have to think for yourselves. Yeah. Costume characters, generally speaking, unless you're going back to the He-Man spectrum, although that's probably a bad example because from memory um, now of these wonderful images or maybe not dancing <laughs> through my mind, He-Man's not wearing very much. Not much at all. Um, it's so maybe, a pair of pants, really, and a belt. It really is, yeah. So Super that, easy. This is obviously why I have costume fails, isn't it? Uh, sorry, Lister, I'm giving you all sorts of nasty visuals. Way too much um, information. But I, I think another way that movies appeal as a theme of fancy dress, and maybe this is where I go and, and have these fails, is that it's transformational. Yeah. You feel that if you are... I was going to again use the example of He-Man, but I, I don't want people to think that that's my sort of fancy sort of dress staple. <laughs> yeah. But the idea that if you're dressing as a character that in a film or in a particular sort of story arc has certain positive qualities, by dressing as them, you become, in a sense, imbued yeah. with their attributes too. So there's almost a process of diffusion through costume. I mean, I think that idea of transforming yourself into someone, a sort of exaggerated version yeah. or, or a better version of yourself, you know, with extra powers or more charisma or whatever it, it, the yeah. sort of movie-related thing of that persona, you sort of occupy that for... The time and I'm getting costume. the sense that I feel a greater urgency to do this than you. That's such I think the so, yes. humdrum nature, possibly, of, <laughs> of, of my life. Of your own, <laughs> your miserable life. Absolutely. Yes. Um, okay. But, well, um, I mean, so so you would go from miserable Ben to extraordinary Ben. Yeah, sort of super Ben or something like that. Um, I'm <laughs> this now, I can't course, wait to see. I'm going to have to post the event. That, <laughs> you really are that prompts um, this costume, of course. That would cause so much sort of anxiety. Anyway, but that's <laughs> that's a whole other episode. That's a whole other um, episode. and maybe a whole different other yeah. podcast as well. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, people who really hate it. Yeah. I think we should definitely do that. <laughs> um, but the idea that you're not just improving yourself in that scenario, mm. but the world around you. And we've seen that sort of sense of transporting or temporarily making everything a better place through the use of costume mm. in examples in hospitals, haven't we? We have. I mean, I've spoken with people with sort of the research that I've been doing I suppose conventionally referred to it as cosplay. So they're dressing yeah. as superhero characters and... I suppose just out of a sort of social desire to help others, they will go in costume, particularly to children's hospitals, yeah. tour the wards, and in character, give a sense of hope or inspiration mm. to children so that they can forget or temporarily yeah, distance themselves. Yeah, from, exactly so. Yeah. We've, I suppose, seen it more obviously reported in the case of celebrities. So, for example, last year, Tom Holland, who is the sort of latest incarnation of Spider-Man, toured a children's hospital ward in New York. It demonstrates, I think, though, this, this episode with Tom Holland of how it can slightly go wrong <laughs> when you're dealing with children because he, on the face of it, quite stupidly, asked the children, he's, okay, he's dressed as Spider-Man, and he asked the children, who is your favourite dressed or caped sort of crusader? Yeah. And he gave them a choice, which again seems equally bizarre, Spider-Man or Batman. Um, let's just say the answer wasn't <laughs> Spider-Man. Um, so, so he had it, to quickly get in a taxi and get I, I think so. I, I'm, I'm not aware that he's done it since. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think it does demonstrate, you know, that these heroes can mm. be transformational, but that we possibly all have our favourite. And also I think that in that scenario where the situation itself is either quite bleak or, or stressful and really hard work for mm. everyone, particularly, you know, the kids who are ill, there's a sort of very 
unsophisticated joyousness to fancy dress, which is one of the reasons I love it as Mm. a subject, Mm. that when you see it played out in that scenario, that it really is a moment of complete distraction from, you know, the reality of Mm. their situation. And it's interesting, there's a charity here in the UK called Medicinema, who effectively bring cinema into mm. hospitals for children and indeed for you know families in that scenario because i think there's a whole it's it, you know there's a really boring thing about just being really bored you yeah. know you're very much removed from mm. sort of the normal structure of life and and one of the things that cinema can do is of course take you outside of yourself and remind you or reconnect you Mm. with a broader world outside. And I think what they do is amazing. And the link to Medicinema is in our show notes. So if you're interested in them or indeed supporting them, do check that out. Absolutely. So we've seen superheroes used as well, haven't we, for political statements, sort of slightly tying into Mm. our previous episode about costume as a tool for protest. So it's not just the good guys in a charitable setting, but in a more kind of actively campaigning. Yeah, for sure. Because I think, you know, as you said, when we're thinking of the hospital sort of scenario and and people donning costumes, you do have that element of pure delight. But I think as previous episodes have shown, the apparent frivolity of fancy dress in some ways is only ever sort of skin deep. It's quite superficial. And I think we see that idea in the example that that comes instantly to mind of Fathers for Justice. Mm -hmm. So these are men who are essentially campaigning to have greater access to their um, children and to pursue their agenda to, I suppose, resonate. We've talked about this issue before in episode one about gaining sort of media attention to make people aware of your cause. They will dress as superheroes. So, for example, Batman and Robin and, and, and Superman and have paraded themselves in front of Buckingham Palace, sort of climbing the facade, so next to where the Queen and the, and the royal family comes out on the, the balcony to watch the Red Arrows and all of that sort of fanfare. Yeah. You know, you've had the Fathers for Justice guys, you know, with their banners. You've had them climbing onto the rooftops of UK politicians' houses. And I think it's this idea that you are in costume, so there is that instant you know, tapping into the movies, the instant recognition yeah. of what the Batman, the Robin, whoever it is, means in mm-hmm. a very positive way. And as, again, possibly we've alluded to in, in, in the first episode of, about protest, using humour yeah. as a vehicle then to talk about something that's a little bit that's more... much more serious. Yeah. And interestingly, you know, it's clever that they are very firmly visually placing themselves... Mm on the side of good versus evil, that classic split in every superhero story. Mm. And it's almost like, as a spectator, regardless of what you think about their campaign or, you know, the sensitivity around that particular issue, you Mm. can't help but respond with the weight of experience of, it's kind of like instinctively your response is, well, the good guys have turned up. And that's a very clever Mm. tool to use in a scenario where actually you have a message that's not actually always straightforward. No, absolutely. And I think it reminds me of a book that a historian or academic, Barbara Brownie, has written about superhero costume. And she talks about, in a sense, the dual identity, if we think about sort of the Clark Kent and and, and Superman, but also the idea that when you're in costume, you are, as you say, so absolutely confident in your ability to be a force for good. Right. There's no moral complexity to that at all. No, not at all. It's really, yeah, we read it as one thing and one thing only. There's a purity Mm. to... And I think what's also interesting is is our reactions to that, that when we see the sort of cape crusaders or, or men or women dressing... In, in this really odd context, sort of front yeah. of Buckingham Palace, we don't necessarily think 
well, that's we, okay. We think it's odd. It, you know, it's incongruous. It's to attention have, grabbing. Yeah, yeah, but we don't necessarily perhaps ridicule them in the same way that we might if it were a clown or, or possibly somebody in a more ambiguous fancy mm. dress costume because we, as you say, I instantly identify. We see the the S emblazoned yeah. on Superman's chest and we might be thinking, okay, what's going on here? But we're also thinking goodness triumphs and, yeah, you know, and yeah, all of that. Yeah. And I think that's what, you know, is dancing through our minds. It's quite manipulative, isn't it, in that yes. respect? But in a way that I quite enjoy. Yeah, I, I do. Think. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> um, so if universal shared references is, is why film is such mm. a great influence on fancy dress generally, I mean, there is nothing more straightforwardly populist than cinema. And I suppose... The other thing about the big screen is that it has the capacity to define a visual moment so very successfully. And I think that's one of the mm. reasons why it's such a sort of rich territory yeah. for, the, for this subject. And for me, there's two sides to that. One is about just it being pure populist yeah. mm. gorgeousness. And the other is about sort of visual power of a moment that mm. is not necessarily about a bigger subject, but just entirely visual. The costumes are so memorable or so beautiful mm. that you kind of cut, they kind of exist with you after the yeah, film. Yeah, that almost sort of, sort of aesthetic deliciousness exactly, of, of what and that's you're enough. seeing. Yeah. So if we tackle those two types mm. one by one, so we talk about the sort of populism on its own. I mean, for me, there are some, some great examples of, of that sort of thing, you know, particularly perhaps my favourite would be Marilyn Monroe yes. in the white dress <laughs> from Seven Year Itch. I mean, it's an amazing story actually behind that. So William Travilla, who's the costume designer mm. for that, kept the dress. He died in 1990. And after his death, it was auctioned for a whopping 5.6 million. Wow. And it's funny because I was thinking about that dress. You know, it's such an iconic image. Mm. For me, I have a very, when it comes to sort of personal choice, one of the things I love about fancy dress is that, you know, my preferred angle on that is highly elaborate, yep. over-art-directed, mm. ridiculously complex, <laughs> requires hours and hours, frankly, weeks and weeks of preparation. But I also have a soft spot for a shit mm. Marilyn Monroe in a white dress. <laughs> well, who doesn't, yeah. Who doesn't? And, and I kind of think there's something really charming mm. about, you know, a sort of rubbishy nylon version of that dress, a sort of itchy wig. Mm. And you know, the thing about that costume is that it isn't iconic without the wind machine yeah. you know, that, that brought it to life. But I, I, I think when you're wearing it, you, the wind machine is there. I mean, whether your it head, actually, yeah, of course exactly it is. So, yeah. right? Maybe that's what's so charming about it. Because, of course, it isn't really there at you know, a provincial cocktail party. So they always look sad, a bit sad, yes. a bit dressed. But I love that idea. And there's a great bravery in mm. sort of saying, right, well, I'm going to dress as, you know, one of the world's yes, greatest yeah. beauties. Mm. And, you know... Mm. But I, I, think, up, I think, yeah, with that. I'm kind of, I don't know, I just find it really the idea that there are probably, you know, hundreds of thousands of versions of that mm. white dress hung in the back of people's wardrobes. I find very, yeah, sort of quite moving in a way. Well, I think so. And again, it is, as you said, that sort of shared connectivity that we have both with movies, but I think, you know, as we're exploring through this series, fancy dress as well. Um, but as you were talking, what I was also thinking is you'll be very glad to know that Cecil Beaton, of course, would, would completely <laughs> agree with you. So on from, this and so many. Well, absolutely. <laughs> so from um, on high, he's looking down and smiling Aww. because he wrote, I think it was in 1934 or something, he wrote an article for Vogue and he was talking about fancy dress and, and giving his sort of guidance as was his way and actually sort of said that in some ways the more effective fancy dress costumes are those that do just look a little bit shit that you know <laughs> that you've, you've clearly thought about but you're not going as we've seen in sort of episode two to worth and right. spending oodles and oodles of money 
which is beyond the reach of a lot of people, you're in a sense letting your hair down or, or, or whatever, but in a way that is a bit thrifty. The, the risk that's involved there, the daring course, that can be involved, right. is quite enchanting. And I think that's the sort of angle he was taking. Well, I'm very, very glad <laughs> to be on the same side <laughs> of that argument. I suppose the other sort of purely populist mm. thing which we should touch on in this episode Sadly, I have a slight sort of distaste around this, but is the sort of Disney princess idea. And that feels, I think, like a kind of rites of passage moment Mm. for most young girls. And I will, in the interest of full disclosure, point out that (laughs) there's a sort of underlying spite with which Mm. I now talk (laughs) about this because I was never allowed one growing up. And I think probably I'm just really jealous. Yeah. But nevertheless, I'll continue (laughs) having fessed up to that background. But everyone has been to a kid's party or any kind of, you know, you see wall-to-wall nylon princesses. And, you know, we have to probably talk about the most recent example of that, which is the Frozen phenomena. Oh, of course, yeah. And, you know, I remember watching that film and as a mother of a son and a feminist, I I was completely horrified by Mm. the transformation moment in that film where she goes from being her normal self Mm. to a sort of super-powered version of herself. And at the height of her powers, she whizzes round and belting out this, you know, song, which now you all have. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, it's dancing through my mind, but I I will save you that. I've already given you the visuals of He-Man. I'm not going to... I don't want you to sing as well. It's all too much. But as she's doing that and wafting about and the snow is, you know, dancing in time and everything... Her outfit goes from being reasonably normal Mm. to, you know, slit to the thigh. Her cleavage becomes very prominent in a way Mm. that you hadn't noticed it before. The shoulders are out. The the waist is nipped into the point where it's honestly smaller Mm. than the circumference of her head. And I remember... sort of looking around in the cinema and thinking there's nobody else sort of surprised even mm. really noticed this and maybe it's because we're so used to that moment of but it's interesting because I then find that when I see those girls in those costumes you know five years old four mm. years old I cannot help but associate it with that strangely sexualized moment mm. where the heroine at her greatest yes actually becomes stripped down mm. I mean, I think that's that's really interesting because there has been a lot of discussion about, in, in sort of academic context, but more broadly, about the sort of masculine gaze. Yeah. That when you have superheroes that are male, by and large, they are fully clad into in their clothing. Yeah. Whereas with females, somehow, bizarrely, a defining characteristic of them being super means that they're somehow able to shed loads of clothes. Yeah, they can do what they were doing before, mm. only in tiny items of exactly. scraps of fabric. <laughs> yeah, that, that, and that seems to be... I mean, be you really the, have to suspend disbelief yeah, at that. Because, the defining you know, characters. That yeah. scene is, is all to do with, mm. you know, coldness and she must be chilly. Yes, yeah. Chilly. <laughs> <laughs> I just hate it. I think it's, you know, I understand the appeal of all of those things from a five-year-old girl point mm. of view, but it just seems so depressing to me that we have to kind of reduce a female character when, in fact, mm. the narrative is telling you the opposite, but the visual language of that undermines that storyline to me in a way that is... And then you see them, you know, copying in in the clothes the whole time Mm. and it's just sort of... I just find it a bit depressing and a bit problematic, I suppose. But I think we also see that in some ways with male characters. I mean, if we think about sort of Chris Hemsworth and people perhaps Mm -hmm. wanting to be Thor or the sort of Logan character, you know, and so on and so forth. I mean, I suppose I'm I'm thinking now more about sort of the toys and spin-offs, but... 
it's been again sort of sort of studies have shown that if you were to compare my little sort of humble He-Man character from the 1980s, yeah. um, yes, he'd have his sort of bulging pecs and yeah, all of that. He was quite. He was yeah, in he shape. Was, he, was, he was all right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is just becoming an episode where I know, I'm just sorry. sort of I'm <laughs> living, just living through now. my fantasies and uh, fantasies. But, <laughs> um, but if you were to buy a kind of Hugh Jackman Wolverine and let's say scale him up to sort right. of adult size, the muscles would just be absurd. And and the, the academic angle of this is that it's leading into sort of body dysmorphia right. and, and as you say, these completely unrealistic expectations. But speaking as a girl, I don't have a lot of sympathy for that because I feel like that's just you guys catching up to the fact that you know yeah. it's long been levied at mm. bar for example, yeah. that if you proportioned her as a real life version, she wouldn't be able to stand yeah, up. She'd have yeah. to walk on all fours. Mm. And I read somewhere, we'll put the link to all of these things that we're talking about in our show notes, but somewhere that she only would have room for kind of half a liver or something. Oh, okay. <laughs> also, that Barbie is a drinker. She needs a whole... <laughs> that's all I could think. She's definitely yeah. going to need a whole liver. Mm. All that is is the same argument played out on a male body. Yeah. And that's a kind of... Yeah. It's interesting in itself that it takes us mm. this long to point exactly. that out. And, and I think, again, if we're thinking about that in fancy dress terms, if you wanted to be the Hugh Jackman character, even I think if you wanted to be Thor, you can get you know a costume that has the abs built in. Yes, you a don't, muscles, in a, a sense, muscle vest. Exactly, you don't have muscle that, suit. as far as I'm aware. The equivalent for women, if they wanted to sort of dress up, it's still a case right. of relying on the sort of natural physique and then revealing sort of them is yeah. scantily clad. So again, there is this massive imbalance, I think. Um, and we talked about those costumes, the masculine superhero costumes. Mm. As being, some of them are, I mean, there's a huge market in them yeah. and some of them are pretty expensive, aren't they? They're quite kind of punchy. Yeah, absolutely. So if you wanted to buy the sort of Batman Dark Knight Rider costume, there's an American company that will sell it to you for $1,500. Yikes. In this country, if we're thinking of sort of Darth Vader costumes, yeah. we're maybe thinking seven, eight hundred pounds. Right. So, I mean, extraordinary sums of money. So you can money. throw money at the problem and get a very honed physique, yeah. albeit just in the outfit itself. Yeah, and for a couple of hours in the evening. Yeah, it's but it's really sweaty, isn't it? <laughs> Ooh, yes. <laughs> okay, so if we park that for a minute and sort of say that's the populist end of the thing, let's talk for a little bit about the moments in film that mm -hmm. are just so either beautiful mm. or so defined in such a way that, you know, they become things that sort of live long in the yeah. fancy dress memory, as it were. And obviously, you know, there are lots of examples of that. So Bonnie and Clyde, yes. you know, Faye Dunaway's beautiful version of that. Again, off-copied. Breakfast at Tiffany, that particularly the Givenchy dress, mm. that also falls into my category of I love a shit yes. Breakfast at Tiffany yeah. outfit as well. Mm. Like a wonky tiara, <laughs> a shiny black dress. Yeah, and as you that. said, we've all seen those. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You've all seen them. So mm. often referenced in the sort of fancy dress. You know, Elizabeth Taylor's Cleopatra, mm -hmm. again, to, you know, Elizabeth Taylor, Marilyn Monroe, I think yeah. it's very, very brave to say, well, I'm going to go as Cleopatra and, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. and emulate this, you mm -hmm. know, sort of iconically beautiful mm -hmm. woman. But, you know, you can't really do a version of Cleopatra in fancy dress that doesn't have... It's much, they tend to be much more 60s as a consequence of yes. that film than they do mm. authentically in mm. ancient Egypt. And I think that's a really interesting thing. I think you're right because it, it, it's the idea that, you know, there have been you know, on the silver screen so many different Cleopatras, etc. So which one are you going to pick? Yeah. And I think that was an interesting point that's been made about Batman characters. We mentioned the sort of yeah. dark knight and, and, and that very expensive costume. But the idea that possibly you don't want to dress as the Adam West Batman because of apparently sort of overtones of, you know, him camping up the character um, links to sort of homosexuality. That's not 
perhaps how some people would want their Batman. Right. So they go for the more sort of angry Pick and your yeah, uh, version and, of and, masculinity and sort of grisly, yeah, sort of Christian Bale character. I think. Right. Um, but it's also interesting, I think, if we're thinking about sort of Cleopatra, if we're thinking about Holly Golightly, when we see them in those films, the outfit that becomes iconic that we then all interpret is the moment in the film where they're they're at their sort of apogee, they're at yes. the height of their powers, such that they are in that particular film and, and, and narrative. I think. Yeah, and it, those are in fashion terms. Those are moments that sort of are burnt on your mm. retina yeah, they for, are. as you yeah. leave the cinema. And for me, I mean. I think probably the best example of that. I remember going to see Atonement, mm. which would have been in 2007. Mm -hmm. And I genuinely couldn't really, I'm having read the book and, you know, yeah. we all went to see that film. I've never been as mesmerized by a costume as I was by that green mm. dress. So costume designer Jacqueline Duran and the green silk dress that mm. Kira Knightley wears was just so startlingly beautiful to me that mm. and in fact <laughs> i uh i was so into it mm. that i spent days and days afterwards i'm not this is i'm not suggesting this is a normal response <laughs> <to go. laughs> i spent days and days really really researching how close i could get to, mm. to buying a dress that looked like that and the reality is there was absolutely nothing that existed at all it was otherworldly in its beauty mm. uh, so i ended up commissioning a costume designer to oh, wow. make me one yeah just to take it to the next level this is why you've not had a costume fail isn't it I'm, I'm learning yes. quickly you see you've just got to really go for it you've got to over research it but you know that dress it was just i can't remember anything about that film just that that, that moment but i yeah. could describe to you in acute detail the way it moved the mm. way it was of course the problem i mean i did have a fail really with that Ooh. because obviously there's a fundamental problem which is that i'm not kira knightley which you don't realize until you've you know, <laughs> yeah. gone through the rigmarole of mm. having it that was quite disappointing disappointing when I tried oh. it on yeah I should have seen that coming but I didn't because I was so into the yeah. idea I was just obsessed well that's it. actually an interesting point that you you see these characters you you sort of you know dress up as, but then you, perhaps there are those moments when it, maybe it's not transformational it really wasn't in my case you, I have to say. <laughs> that almost sort of physically and psychologically you get a kind of slippage between yeah. you and the character and so the reality bites it really did um, I actually don't want to talk about it anymore. It's See, I'm now thinking. I'm now thinking about some back to He-Man, obviously, and just how I could never live up to that. I think you just need to maybe broaden your references, Ben. I, I think I need to. Think? Yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> what an eye opener this episode's it becoming, really has been, been <laughs> and cathartic. Really cathartic. So, all of those examples, though, that we've used. Mm that we've just talked about are about mimicking film characters, not always successfully, but mm. in tribute to them. But there's a whole other angle, isn't there, about, mm. you know, another angle that reveres these screen icons a lot less. I think so. And I think the best way of demonstrating that is a particular painting. So we'll show this in our Instagram feed. It's a painting um, from 1941 called March of the Clowns by a German-born artist, Albert Bloch, living in America at the time. He's fled from Germany because of National Socialism and the persecutions against Jewish people. And, and Albert Bloch is um, Jewish. So, as I said, the image will be online, but just to um, describe it, we're essentially in a sort of circus big top. So you've got a row of clowns that are marching the perimeter of this arena You've got a crowd, which are, in a sense are quite ill-defined. The crowd and the clowns seem to sort of merge. 
The clowns are playing all sorts of instruments that look a little bit like guns, which I think is a reference to the war that's currently raging in Europe. Um, America, I think at the time of this painting, hasn't yet declared war on Germany. But what's particularly interesting is that in the bottom left-hand corner of this image, you've got a whole series of cartoon characters from the movies that would have been popular during the 1940s. So people like Popeye and Olive Oil, Crazy Cat, Ignatz Mouse. And this is a very enigmatic painting. You've got Christian symbols, you've got a swastika, you've got a sort of hanging Hitler. And again, you can see this all in the image. But I think what's often been suggested is that Albert Bloch is making a pointed commentary on the consumerism of America. And right. this is why you've got these cartoon characters here. So essentially criticising the capitalist sort of nature of American society. I think what's interesting is that you have, in so doing, in making this critique, this sort of intermingling on the one hand of fancy dress, which is consumerist, as, as we've been saying, this sort of merging between what people are buying, what they're encouraged to wear because of the movies, and then these characters. So I think it's as much because of the kind of reference to sort of Hitler and Judaism within the painting, a critique of society during the 1940s. I think it's also a more pointed critique and, and commentary on the way that these movie characters and the way that people engage and sort of lap them up is in some ways manipulative, as in, in many ways, as we've been saying. Right. Or they gather attention in a way that might distract from the real issues of the day. I th perhaps. Yeah, I think that's a good I mean, way of putting it. I mean, it's open to interpretation, mm. isn't it? Having seen this image, you know, for the first time, I think the thing that is perhaps most disturbing for me is that the sort of, the characters, the fictional characters that dressed up there that we are used to watching mm. are in fact the audience here. So there is yes. a sense that there is a chaos to the natural order of things yeah. that in itself is very unsettling mm. to see. And I think that it maybe goes back to where we were starting in terms of thinking about why it might be with the Milwaukee Journal, that extract, why it might be that during times of economic turbulence, fancy dress appeals, because as you've said, you've got that turbulence mm. um, in society. And also, why might it be that heroes from the movies appeal? Because again, you've got that sense of duality. Yeah. I mean, if we think about Spider-Man, if we think about Batman, it particularly, it tends to be more male characters, I guess, but I think this is equally true of female um, characters. That wrestling between their human persona and yeah. their superhuman persona. And I think in some ways, from what you've, you know, you've just said, I think that idea that the painting channels that, yeah. that mixture of audience, spectator. And I suppose all of that leads us into thinking about cinema's capacity to explore the ugly mm. and the cruel and the horrific. And we see that in terms of film's influence on Halloween costumes yes. particularly. Yeah. So the popularity overwhelmingly for sort of film references in Halloween, you know, V for Vendetta, yeah. Terminator, The Joker, all the really nasty ones, It mm. and things like that, they do lend themselves because I think cinema explores so very well horror, mm. then it's sort of, it's a very easy leap to appropriate that for your own Halloween version of, the, yeah. of that thing. There's a great story, isn't there, about the Day of the Dead in James Bond, the parade. And yes. The sort of how that started. <laughs> yeah, it's so it, it kind of bizarre because if we remember Spectre, the latest instalment of the James Bond franchise, it begins with this sort of title sequence where they are in Mexico City and you've got a day of 
the dead parade in, in full swing. But of course, that never existed. But the film created this demand. So people flocking towards Mexico as a holiday destination because they want to partake of what they they've seen on see film. The exactly. Parade. Traditionally, it's a much more intimate exactly. day of so, the dead. Exactly. Yeah, so you don't have this, in a sense, Hollywoodization of it. Right. But this created a demand. So, of course, the tourist board in Mexico decided we need <laughs> a James Bond-esque Day of the Dead parade. And, and so the, now you have one. There was a brilliant tweet by the editor of Nexus magazine in Mexico. He said, this is a cheap stunt. They filmed James Bond here and now we have traditional Day of the Dead parade. <laughs> Let's see what happens when the mayor finishes reading the Da Vinci Code, <laughs> which I thought was suitably cynical in no, response yeah. to that. But I think in some ways that, that would be my sort of natural response to it, that you are grafting this tradition on completely nothing. That, right. you know, there's no substance to it whatsoever, at least in the way that it is depicted. And I suppose talk of Day of the Dead mm -hmm. and of Halloween brings us to the end of this episode and for a tease to the next one because all this talk of Halloween is obviously music to our ears with the ultimate fancy dress moment very close on the horizon now. So in our next episode, we'll be talking more specifically about Halloween as a cultural phenomena complete with a tour of our best and worst historic Halloween fancy dress moments. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's a good idea. I, I'm already worried, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> so be sure to subscribe, share and follow us on Instagram at Dress Fancy Podcast. Links to the things we've discussed are in our show notes. We should say here that there's so much we haven't covered mm. in this episode yeah. in, in terms of the relationship between film and fancy dress. But don't panic. We will be addressing those things. So Rocky Horror, Sing Along Sound of Music and the wonderful work that Secret Cinema do in future episodes yeah. we have loved receiving your feedback so please yeah. please do continue to review um, obviously nice comments only <laughs> uh, but no, we do generally love to hear from your feedback probably the best place for that at the moment is iTunes but you can obviously engage as we've said with our Instagram feed and images there obviously other places to listen to our podcast wherever you prefer. Thanks as ever to our editor Mark, to Ben Fleetwood Smythe for his American accent, only which <laughs> I could do that too, slightly envious. And of course, dear listener, thank you as ever for listening. <laughs> <laughs>